Well, good morning. For those of you that I don't know, my name is Deirdre Chance, and I'm part of the ministry team here at TCC. And I just wanted to acknowledge and give thanks again to the elders for letting me work on and put together this summer-long series that we've been doing on mental health called Soul Care. And today we're looking specifically at the topic of anxiety, fear, and trauma. And those topics are actually what I completed my master's on. And a lot of the sermon is influenced by the research I did for that. And one thing that I learned as I was doing that research is that it's pretty well accepted, generally accepted, that at any given time, 30 to 50% of Americans have experienced or been exposed to at least one traumatic stressor. Then there was a more recent study, more specific study done in 2017 that actually elevated that percentage to 90%. 90% of us have been exposed to or can recall at least one traumatic stressor. Now for most of us, we'll be able to use our personal coping skills to be able to overcome these traumatic stressors, but still it's a warranted risk of distress or meaning the unsuccessful coping of a traumatic stressor. And that can lead to a variety of problems from an inability to fulfill our work or our school or our home responsibilities, to depression, to substance abuse, sleep problems, sleeplessness, heart disease, diabetes, and even cancer. And trauma by definition is just the exposure to death, injury, or sexual violence. And that exposure can be real or it can just be threatened. An emotional response to a traumatic stressor may or may not come. For sometimes, for some people, um, they may have no emotional response or they might have a much delayed emotional response to a traumatic stressor. And some of the long-term reactions to trauma include unpredictable emotions, flashbacks, strained relationships, and even physical symptoms, nausea, headaches. And some examples of what's generally accepted as trauma is physical abuse, community violence, neglect, and neglect can include just not ensuring the protection from exposure to dangerous environments, sexual abuse, domestic violence, natural disasters, accidents, war, medical trauma, have you or someone close to you having pain, sustained illness, invasive procedures like surgery, refugee trauma, school violence, or traumatic grief following the death of someone important to you. And in this whole genesis of anxiety and fear, trauma exists. But anxiety and fear isn't limited to trauma. Anxiety and fear can be related to phobias, which is just that disproportionate fear attached to a specific situation or object. A common phobia attached to a situation is social situations. And people can also struggle with general anxiety, which is defined as the excessive 
and uncontrollable worry about a variety of events or activities. And what physio physiologically occurs in us in response to stressors is just that those deeper structures in the brain known as the limbic system, which control what we commonly call the fight or flight response, are easily activated. And just through a series of hormone and neuron secretions, specific regions of our body are targeted, like our heart, to increase heart rate our lungs to increase breathing, sugar metabolism to elevate those blood sugar levels. And then other areas of our, brain, of our body are suppressed, like the frontal lobe, um, so that where critical thinking happens, and the hypothalamus, where a short memory is processed. And all that makes sense, because if you're in the time of an emergency where you want your fight or flight response to kick in, you really don't want your resources going into analytical thinking or short memory processing. You want your resources going into increasing your heart rate and your breathing and your sugar metabolism so you can have that burst of energy for physical response. And a major stress hormone involved in this process is called cortisol. It's a lot like adrenaline, except for it can last in your system longer. Um, and it, if we're exposed to continued stressors or if we have early exposure to stressors as a child or if we get these exposure at certain critical brain development times in our life, what can happen is we have elevated levels of the stress hormone in our system, just residual le levels there. And in addition, that limbic system of our brain is just a little bit easier to stimulate it kicks in a little bit easier. And so what the effect this has on us is kind of like having your bucket always filled to the rim. And then just a simple stressor can cause things to overflow that you could normally cope with with just your personal coping resources. But what it happens instead is because of those residual levels of cortisol in your limbic system being a little bit easier to kick in is involuntarily, without seeming any choice, you start to experience those physiological symptoms, the heart racing, difficulty breathing, maybe numbness or tingling or lightheadedness. And it's because that limbic system has been overactivated. And the hard thing is it's, we're not even aware oftentimes of feeling stressed, and it just seems like these symptoms come out of nowhere, hence the name panic attack. And we've probably all experienced this type of physiological reaction or something like it. If you've ever been like in a minor car accident and there's a big crash and the glass is breaking and, you know, everything's all dinged up and you probably just walk away with maybe some sore muscles and scratches or something. But then the next time you get behind a car and you just see the car in front of you pump the brakes, the flash of the brake lights just involuntarily, your hands might start sweating, you breathe heavier, your heart starts racing. And you can find it surprising, like all they did was the brakes came on, <laughs> but it's um, because that limbic system has been overactivated and it's just kicking in easily. So how does the Bible help us navigate experiences like this? Experiences of anxiety, fear, and trauma. Well, in this record from Luke, um, there's a large crowd, thousands of people kind of stepping on each other, it records. But Jesus turns, as he often does in the midst of this crowd, to address his disciples. And he starts with a therefore. And this therefore connects to the previous passage, which is the one about the foolish rich man who had such a 
bountiful harvest, he decided, oh, I'm going to knock down all my barns and build bigger ones so that my soul can relax and eat and drink and be merry for years. Yet God requires his soul or his life that very night. But it also connects to a a series of other short teachings before that, um, that Jesus is instructing his disciples in front of the crowds, teaching them on God's authority and power and our value and identity. So Jesus says, therefore, therefore, don't be anxious about our life, about food or clothing. In this passage that Lawrence read, Jesus isn't addressing how we respond in times of abundance, like with the foolish rich man, but how we respond to getting our basic needs met. Things like food and clothing and length of our life. Jesus first addresses our need for food by comparing us to ravens. He tells us to consider the raven which has no way to sow or reap or store food, and yet God feeds them every day. This isn't the first time that God has tried to teach his people by using the raven, which was considered an unclean bird, and using that as an example. Jesus is actually echoing, almost quoting, the same truth that he stated in Psalm 147 and Job 38, that God ensures that Even the ravens are fed. God's trying to communicate to us in a way that we can understand that he's not only interested and concerned about the raven, but he is able to feed them and meet their basic needs. Then after Jesus echoes these Old Testament sentiments and teachings about the ravens, he adds how we have much more value than the birds to our Heavenly Father. The passage is clearly trying to put into our thoughts, trying to lead us to agreement and convince us that God values us, that he cares about meeting our needs. And that topic of value and believing that we're valued is crucial in the topic of anxiety. The next part of the passage quickly directs our attention to another crucial aspect of basic needs, time. Specifically, power over time to extend our life. It states in verse 25, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to a span of life? Do we have power to control or extend our life to add an hour, to add anything to it, by being anxious? I think logically we would quickly say no, but it's kind of ironic because anxiety, with all that boost of energy, actually gives us a feeling of power and control. When that limbic system kicks in, it activates our physical bodies with these boosts of energies, which again can be great in times of physical emergencies. If you had to get out of a burning car, you want your limbic system kicking in. If you had to run from a perpetrator or maybe a bear or a wild animal in the woods, you want that limbic system working. But what about when there's no physical danger? Just a concern for our basic needs to be met. Can anxiety, can the activation of that limbic system add a single hour to our life? Data actually shows it's probably whittling away 
hours, if not days, months, years of our life, much less not adding to it. When those stress hormones are released, it's a common thing to have platelets released that encourage coagulation, which leads to platelets forming in your blood vessels that leads to heart disease and namely heart attack, a risk of heart attack. Can also affect the GI tract system and the metabolism of fats really gets all messed up, leading to weight gain and associated um, health problems with that. Clearly, <laughs> we don't have the power to add a single hour to our life by being anxious. The text says we're not able to even do a small thing as that in verse 26, which kind of, I think, should make us do a double take there and ask, who considers adding the length of life a simple thing? I think only one who has conquered death and is the author of life could say that, which is Jesus Christ. And the last aspect of this passage discusses our basic need for clothing. And Jesus, again, points us to his created world to learn of God's care. He directs us to consider flowers, the lilies, and how they, like the birds, don't do anything to earn the right to receive and be clothed. They don't toil, they don't spin cloth. Rather, they just receive freely, fully depending on God for their beauty and their care. And then Jesus adds an admonishment to his disciples. He says at the end of verse 28, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? In that admonishment, he's challenging the disciples, he's challenging us to be like the flowers and just receive. Trust and believe and have faith that God can and will care about clothing us and taking care of us. And finally, after Jesus says these three short teaching points, he then closes with a little reminder of what to seek after. And that seek is kind of an interesting verb in the Greek. It can be used in the positive sense and mean to worship, seek after God, worship God. Or it can be used in the negative sense and mean to plot or scheme, like plot or scheme against someone's life. But either way, the word seek isn't a light word. It's connected to a deeper Context. It's connected to seeking with our heart, our heart, that core orienting faculty of our being that directs our hopes and our dreams and our goals and our aspirations. And so Jesus sets us or directs us not to set our heart on seeking or plotting or scheming or worshiping after food and clothing and our basic needs. Even though people around us, all the world around us, are going to be seeking and plotting and scheming and worshiping after food and clothing and basic needs, we're to be different. We, in contrast, are to seek, plot, scheme, worship after the kingdom of God. You know, and just think about that difference there for a minute. The difference between seeking after food, drink, clothing, maybe health, to extend our life, or seeking after a kingdom. And the thing that I picture is if, you're, if we're just seeking after getting our basic needs met, it's a bit the image of a peasant where you're just scavenging and rummaging and foraging, just hoping that you can get your food and drink and clothing met. But if you seek after a kingdom, trusting that you're an heir, 
trusting that you're an heiress to the kingdom of your beloved father, not only would your basic needs be met by definition, but there would be an abundance. And it says in verse 31, all these things will be added to you. So why in the world would we ever walk around seeking and scavenging and foraging after just the basics, wringing our hands, downcast, struggling with angst, working obsessive hours, instead of seeking after a kingdom? I think it's because there's real fear and worry. And whether we've absorbed that fear and worry through traumatic events we've gone through, or whether there's something biologically within us that leads to that fear and worry, or whether there's attacks of the enemy, or whether there's a combination of any of those three things, there's a fear. There's a real fear over, will I be taken care of? Will my family be taken care of? Will my children be taken care of. And I think the text is clear on why we can succumb and surrender to that fear. The first one is, we doubt the immeasurable value we have to God. I don't know about you, but it kind of seems too good to be true to me. It seems like, no, he couldn't care for me that much. That kind of seems like a scam, like you see on Craigslist, like something for sale for really cheap, and you're like, that's too good to be true. And often when we walk through the world, the information that we receive and we interpret tells us, you're really not that valuable. You're really not that important. But God is calling us to renew our minds in his truths. Jesus is calling us to consider the birds and the flowers and how they're valued. And he's straight out telling us that we have much more value. Jesus also straight out showed us that we have much more value by taking all our wrongs and punishments on the cross, dying and resurrecting so that we could be with the Father. A second reason we struggle with succumbing to fear and anxiety. It's because we doubt God's power. His power over life to add or to take away. Again, the text shows that to add to a person's lifespan is a small thing for God. Do we really trust that? Do we really agree and consent and believe that he does have the power to take care of us? And finally, the last reason the text shows on why we struggle with fear is because we lack faith and we fear the wrong powers. Again, Jesus admonished the disciples for having little faith. If we had faith in our value to God and his power, we would not only be confident that our Heavenly Father was taking care of us, but we would be giving away our material possessions knowing that we have a generous, powerful, caring, deems me as valuable God. But again, if you're like me, there's probably a piece somewhere in you, maybe in your head, maybe in your heart, maybe in both, that's wondering, can I really believe and trust that God's going to take care of me? Can I really trust 
all this goodness from God? Because what about in times of suffering and pain? That doesn't feel like blessing and provision. What about during times of mental health struggles? It feels like pretty good evidence that maybe God isn't even around, much less caring. The pain and the suffering and the mental health attacks feel like they can negate God's generosity and goodness. For myself, many of you um, have heard this story. When I was four years old, a neighborhood boy, um, friend in the neighborhood, drowned in a swimming pool. And if you can imagine telling a four-year-old that their friend drowned in a swimming pool, that's probably what it was like for my mom. I remember her calling me into her bedroom. I could see she was visibly upset, crying. She told me my friend Neil had drowned. I remember feeling nothing, but I could see my mom was upset, and I think I felt kind of guilty or strange. Um, Then she hugged me, and it was kind of all over. Then in sixth grade, the little boy who was sitting in front of me during homeroom class at the time unexpectedly died from an illness. Then in high school, my best friend's first boyfriend died in a car accident. But when I look back, I think that what was really the difficult part for me occurred when I was about eight or nine years old. Because that's when I started asking the adults in my life, what happens to you when you you die? You would think the adults in my life would connect. Oh, Deirdre's probably asking this because she, Neil died a couple years ago. You'd think I might connect it, but I guess no one did because the adults said to me, oh, that doesn't happen until you're older. You don't have to worry about that. Which again, given my history, (laughs) doesn't make much sense. And so, I ended up coming up with an image for myself of what must happen to you when you die. And it probably doesn't sound like that horrific of an image, but that image would lead me to physically being sick and stomach cramps. And then fast forward to when I was 22 and I started to have full-blown panic attacks. Numbness, difficulty breathing, the rapid heartbeat... And as I process this first with my husband and then more specifically um, in Redemption Group, I realized that um, what I had done was transferred my dad's divorcing and, in a sense, leaving our family um, onto God. I had transferred the lack of my parents' ability to help me during my biggest time of need as I was trying to process death onto God's inability to be there. Because when I started to process and ask what happens to you when you die, that's when my parents, the divorce was starting to get set into motion. And they couldn't. They weren't at a good spot. They couldn't be there for me. Um, And that's why, you know, kind of was left to my own processing and images. But the key thing was, without even meaning to, I put struggles that the, that the people around me were having, and I placed that onto God. And when I would have those panic attacks, and I would feel like, okay, this is it. I'm finally going to see what death actually is. In those moments, what I was really most scared of wasn't that I was going to finally die. It was that I was going to finally die and maybe find out that God couldn't be there for me. And that I'd be alone and abandoned for eternity. But again, thanks to my husband's help in uh, Redemption Group, two things really became clear to me. 
one God just revealed to me supernaturally, that he is more powerful than death, that death is a little thing to him and cannot separate us. Death is like a tic-tac to him that he can just swallow up. And the second thing I realized with just more critical thinking is that I had let the sins and the problems and the shortcomings of others around me define God rather than letting God define himself, namely through his word. You know, and as I look back at that, like, I formed this image of God from the first eight or nine years of my life. Like, there's not even much longevity to that. (laughs) You know, why would I let that little blip of time define who God is, rather than letting his word, which certainly has been around much longer, is more substantiated, well-analyzed, and supported than a little girl's first eight or nine years of life. But for many of us, mental health symptoms that we feel and experience in our body can be a bit like the apple in the garden. Satan can use those mental health breakdowns we experience in our bodies and our minds and try to convince us that what God says isn't true, that we can't trust him, and we better turn to our own efforts, just like he did with Eve in the garden. He gave her empirical evidence. He showed her the apples. She could see the appetizing appearance, giving her reasons to decide God isn't telling me the truth. God's not trustworthy. And we can be just like Eve and fall for this lie. Again, because there's good evidence. I'm feeling my heart race. I can't breathe. I'm having numbness, dizziness, lightheadedness, GI tract problems. And it's easy to be deceived, just like Eve. And when Adam and Eve chose to rebel in sin, God had a choice. He could have pulled out a magic wand and erase the sin, and just continue on through life, erasing all our sins. Sometimes I kind of think that we as Americans who tend to seek comfort above all else have a hard time understanding why that wouldn't be the best option. (laughs) Um, He could have pulled out a rod of wrath and just erased us. And if you have a strong sense of justice, you might have a hard time understanding why he doesn't just do that. But he actually went with a hybrid method. He went with a hybrid that satisfied the payment of wrongdoing and sin and also brought in incredible, unmerited blessing and redemption. Genesis 3 records God's cursing on the serpent, on the woman, on the man, and by extension, on the created world as a result of sin as a result of man and woman not trusting God. But it also records in Genesis 3, almost in the same breath, God's promise. God's promise to send an offspring of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, the power of the enemy, and thus overcome the curse of sin. So if it's really true that Jesus Christ being fully God and fully human, who as Isaiah 53 states, was well acquainted with grief and was despised and rejected in order to to bear our griefs and carry our sorrows, who was wounded to ultimately bring about our healing through his death on the cross by his resurrection, then that is something to go all in for. 
If that's true, then Christ's position in the heavenly realm, Christ's identity, Christ's blessings, Christ's inheritance, Christ's healing, and Christ's power, the Holy Spirit power that raised him from the dead, is our position, is our identity, and our blessing, and our inheritance, and our healing, and our power by faith, thanks to God's grace. All of Christ is a living reality which we can not only encounter even in times of mental health struggles, but embrace and receive abundantly by faith. Again, I have to admit, it's hard to believe. (laughs) It seems too good to be true, which is probably one reason why God filled up the whole Bible with these truths so we can constantly remember and remind ourselves and remind one another of their reality. And that's how we grow in faith, believing it a little more and a little more and letting it sink in a little more deeply and let it overflow a little more freely. And it's exciting because as we renew our minds in the word that tells us we are indeed very valuable and God is indeed completely able and powerful to care for our needs, we grow in faith. We grow in entrusting more of ourselves to a worthy, powerful God who indeed cares for us, even if we've gone through trauma, even if we have anxiety and fear. And ironically, the very traumatic events, pain, biological symptoms we experience can be the sources that propel us to God to reflect more on our value and his power. In in the very first sermon I gave in this series, I talked about how different domains, like the psychological domain, the biological domain, the spiritual domain, actually connect and interact. And this topic of anxiety is a beautiful, realistic example of how these different domains interact. There's good evidence to suggest that psychological structures, like thoughts and emotions, can affect us biologically and influence neural states and hormone secretions. And there's evidence that psychosocial events can impact the development and wiring of our brains. So for example, if an infant doesn't receive specific interactions and emotions from a caregiver, it will impact the development of their brain and its neural pathways. Furthermore, God has so ordained it that the primary human representation to teach us about God is our parents or our primary caregiver. And so right there in that example, we see how the biological, the psychological, and the spiritual all connect and interact. And similarly, there is good, solid, empirical evidence to show that when we change our thoughts, we can create new and healthier neural pathways and rewire memory experiences with more positive emotional attachment which is all a very technical way of saying that when we choose to let a traumatic flashback, a memory of pain or suffering or feelings of any level of anxiety be the impetus that leads us to meditate on our value and God's power to heal or to care for us, we heal psychologically, emotionally, biologically, and spiritually. 
And in addition, we can actually enhance those lower level biological and psychological interventions that we use in therapy. When we use those interventions in conjunction with a higher order theocentric focus, seeing God as the healer and author through all available resources enhances any lower level interventions we do. So for example, if we take medication or we do deep breathing exercises with a thankfulness to God, acknowledging him as their source, as 1 Timothy 4 directs us to do, it accurately includes him into these lower-level processes and enhances them because he's their source. If you do exposure therapy for trauma and you invite God into those memories, it enhances your healing. As we press on in faith, allowing these difficulties, the trauma, the stress, the anxiety, the physical symptoms we experience to become the catalyst to prompt us to greater trust of our high value to God and God's power to care for us, we're actually using positive coping mechanisms that scientific data supports and which the Bible has been telling us to do for hundreds if not thousands of years longer than the scientific method has been around. So I just want to end with two questions and reflections. Is there a need you have? Entrust it to God. Commit it to him. Is there a healing from trauma or anxiety or fear you have? Again, Tell it to God. Bring it to him. Commit it to him. Invite him into it because he will care for you because you are valuable and he is all-powerful. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your steadfast love to us, Lord. We pray and we ask that you, by your grace and your dedication to us, would Come into our life, come into our experiences, bring us healing out of your love and your goodness. We trust you for this, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.